Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neural Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Man, that is really good too. Kind of a cool Monday. So I got a text from uh, our boy Josh Lindblom, pitcher for the Milwaukee Brewers. They are in the playoffs. Um, so I won't get to see you this week, Josh, um, but we'll be following you guys and, and hopefully you'll do really, really well. Okay, so let's dig into Monday's Q&A. Comes from Mark. Mark's got a flywheel question. Um, he says, my question refers to the exercise modality and your opinions regarding eccentric inertial training machines. Um, I've looked at these machines in the past, was wondering what your, your thoughts of these may be as a superior training modality as it applies to the model that you use, as multiple planes of movement can be done safely while progressing concentric, eccentric, and eccentric overload as it applies to helping with movement restrictions and athletic performance. If not, what place would it have, and is there another exercise modality that you prefer? Okay. So let's talk about this conceptually first from the model perspective. So, so Mark, the first thing that we always want to use is, is we want to use a principle-based model because it's not about finding like a modality that is necessarily superior in all cases or more useful than another. It's about having the principles and an understanding as to what the needs may be, and then we can select better interventions. So when I constructed the wide ISA and narrow ISA archetypes, what I was looking for was to explain the behaviors, <clears throat> excuse me, explain the behaviors um, that I, they observe. So basically it's identifying what somebody is good at, what they're not good at, and why that might be. And then this allows us to identify these gaps in performance um, and provide better interventions to produce the, the desired outcome or, or adaptations. So, so once we identify what this person's capabilities are, and again, that's why the archetypes become so useful, um, we can just uh, determine like what intervention might be appropriate. So that might be an exercise, or it may be a tool like a barbell, a kettlebell, a band, an agility exercise. Um, what loading parameters um, would be uh, uh, the, the necessary influence? So we talk about magnitude and location and timing and, and all the other elements uh, of force production. And so if we're going to talk about a specific tool, what we want to do is say, well, what situation might this this tool be ideal. So the inertial, uh, the eccentric inertial trainers have certain qualities that, that they will produce. And so, so if we look at those, we would say, okay, so, so this type of a, of a intervention increases the duration of, of the propulsive phase. It'll magnify exhalation and compression. It'll increase the concentric motor unit pool output. It increases tissue stiffness. It increases the rate at which those those tissues are loaded. So now we just have to say, okay, where does this this fit in, and then what problem does it solve? And so if if we take a look at what it does, and and then we have a person that we say, well, they already have the ability to sustain the, the propulsive phase, or they already have tissue stiffness. Um, this really wouldn't be the, the solution for them. Um, if we apply it to someone that lacks these things, now we have a useful intervention. So let's go through a couple of examples um, as, as a representation. So somebody comes in, they have narrow ISA, they're gonna be biased towards an eccentrically oriented uh, pelvic diaphragm. Now, if this person lacks force production, um, so, so again, they, they don't propel well, they lack tissue stiffness, so instead of being able to store and release energy 
from their connective tissues, their dampeners, so again, they, they just don't produce force very well, then this inertial trainer actually may be part of the solution because if we can increase the propulsive force and we can teach them to, to manage tissue stiffness more effectively, now we actually have an increased vertical jump potential or whatever the, the parameter that we're, we're training for may be. Somebody comes in with a, with a wide ISA, they're biased towards force production all day, every day. They have very high tissue stiffness, so let's just say they've already done a bunch of heavy strength training, and so, so tissue's already stiff. And now we apply this same, this same modality, um, what's gonna happen is we may not get any effect whatsoever, it may not be demonstrated, or if we magnify what they're already good at, um, we may see a, an increase in, like say, further strength output, but what if we, what if we increase their tissue stiffness even further, we've taken away their yielding strategy, so now they can't store and release energy either, and so now we've actually reduced their explosiveness or done absolutely nothing for them. Where I can see the, the uh, eccentric or inertial trainers really coming in handy though, Mark, is, is at, at one end of the rehab, or, or if we want to use the, the term prehab, um, we, we can call it that. The extended duration of loading and the prolonged overcoming action that's produced in the tissues um, is actually beneficial from, from a tendon adaptation standpoint, very similar to what we would see with the static protocols that have actually shown to, to have some benefit in, in cases of, of different types of, of, of tendinopathy. And so, um, again, it's just a matter of identifying what this tool is useful for. So I hope you can see how, how you, you, number one, you need to evolve a principle-based model, and then everything just kind of falls into place once you're you're better able to identify what the needs of the individual are. It's not about what what I like or what I think is superior under the circumstances. Is what this person can execute based on what their needs are, um, based on the interventions that that we're going to utilize. So again, principle-based approach. Pick your interventions wisely, and then monitor the outcomes. It's not about success or failure. It's about determining what the next logical step is. Mark, have a great Monday. Everybody else, have a great Monday. I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand, and it is perfect. It's also International Coffee Day, which seems silly to me because it's an everyday International Coffee Day. Um, Neuro Coffee, brilliant, brilliant. Ran out of coffee yesterday, got the new shipment yesterday. Somehow they're reading my mind they, or they just know things. Um, spectacular, thrilled to have it. Um, so I am ready to go for today's Q&A. And this comes from Terry. Those of you that have ever seen the Terry Project and the, the postural change that we made on Terry, um, that would be this guy. Um, so Terry has a question. He's also an avid golfer um, in addition to his tango dancing. And uh, so his question is, uh, a question was asked on a golf forum about how a golfer should or should not breathe executing a golf swing. What are your thoughts? So I have some really, really good thoughts here and it allows to unpack a little bit about some, some anatomical concepts that I think need, need to be um, expressed and understood because I think we, we've been, we've been um, basing things off of some really old constructs that, that we probably just need to get, get rid of. So we might be kicking a sacred cow or two here, I'm not really sure. Um, let's just 
talk about anatomy first and foremost. So, so the, the first guys that did the dissections and the people that got to name the, the anatomy, you can just picture the, the, the dead guy anatomy concept guy laying on the slab and they said, hey, we got this guy laying here. Um, we got to measure these things. So let's make the zero point straight up. And so that's what they did. So, so everything that, that we measure, we measure up this imaginary zero point that, that is straight up from our body if we were laying on our back in the traditional uh, anatomical position. And, and that's our first failure because what we need to understand is that, that everything that, that we do in regards to movement is a superimposition. So we have two strategies, one plane, and those two strategies are always superimposed upon one another. So we have internal rotation and external rotation that occur at the same time, just to different degrees. And so if I move, move a, a body part towards what we would consider traditional external rotation, Yes, I'm picking up external rotation, but I'm just reducing the internal rotation. So the internal rotation still exists. I'm just gaining external rotation. We talk about inhalation or exhalation. Inhalation and exhalation are both occurring at the same time. So if I fill my lungs with uh, by 50%, I'm half inhaled, half exhaled. If I exhale a little bit more, I'm just biased towards exhalation and, and a little bit less inhalation. So we have to recognize these things as being superimposed. That's why you always hear me talk about a bias, because what I'm expressing to you is, is that yes, all of that, those things that you think are internal rotations, there's still internal rotation there. It's just biased towards more external rotation. And so we're going to, have to talk about this um, as we talk about a golf swing. Um, a couple other concepts for us to access movement, we have to be biased biased towards expansion, otherwise we have to create some form of compensatory strategy. To produce force, we have to be biased towards a compressive strategy, so more of an exhalation concept. So again, breathing is, is our way that we can help ourselves bias towards the expansion element and the, com the compression element. Okay, now let's go to the golf swing. So should you breathe during a golf swing? Um, you better because you're gonna need to to be able to access um, movement and force production. So think about this now for a second. So if we're gonna move ourselves into the backswing, we're gonna be biased, biased towards external rotation throughout the system, which means that we're gonna be moving towards an expansive strategy. Otherwise, we cannot access ranges of motion that are necessary to accomplish our effective golf swing. So all you have to do is go out to the range and take a, take a breath, squeeze it as tight as you can, and then try to move. Doesn't really work too well. So I have to be able to inhale to capture these positions at, at end ranges. Now, at about the point where I'm coming down from the backswing, where my, my arm is about parallel to the ground, I start to bias myself towards an exhalation strategy because I have to produce force. I actually have to stop my body from moving so I can translate the force into the club head. So this is where the club's, club head's gonna start to pick up its acceleration. I'm gonna hit um, the maximum exhalation strategy at the point of impact. And so this is max propulsion for, for a golf swing. Just like when we talk about gait or running or whatever, we have to have our, our max propulsion. After the impact with the ball, I have to move again towards um, my, my ability to externally rotate, my ability to inhale, inhale and expand because I have to recapture the external rotation bias in follow through. So the same sequence occurs no matter what sporting event that we're actually talking about. 
if I if I'm uh, swinging a tennis racket, a, a golf club, a baseball bat, if I'm throwing a ball, any kind of implement sport, any kind of rotational activity, all of these things are going to occur because I need to have an external rotation inhalation bias to access positions and movement, and then I need to capture an exhalation, internal rotation, compressive bias to produce force. And so again, they're always superimposed. I'm just biasing myself in one direction or the other. So it's always two strategies, one plane. Always two strategies, one plane. It's all that you have. And all we have to do is understand is how they interact how they're superimposed, and how we bias ourselves towards one or the other. And that answers so many questions about how we do things. So hopefully that gives you a little food for thought. Um, for all of you golfers out there, hope it gives you a little something to, to think about because all you guys think that you're internally rotating when you're actually externally rotated bias in the top of that backswing. That's why you cheat all the time. That's why you see the foot roll up to the outside edge. That's why you see the knees starting to point out towards right field at the top of those backswings. People don't have enough external rotation. It's not internal rotation. So a little, little extra tip there for the golfers. Anyway, have a great Tuesday and I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Another busy Wednesday as usual, big clinic day and such, but a couple of reminders uh, before we roll here. Um, IFAST University members, Mike Robertson will be on the Q&A today at 1 p.m. Eastern. Do not miss it. If you're not on IFASTU, I suggest you do that. Um, go to ifastuniversity.com and you can get signed up there. Uh, tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. for your early risers and coffee drinkers, we have the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. We've had some killer calls the last few weeks. Great group of people, great questions, great discussion. Um, learn something for free. Okay. So yesterday I made a throwaway comment at the end of the, the discussion. We were talking about, about breathing and golf and, and how that would work. And, and I made a comment in regards to the, the, the top of backswing being external rotation. And that made some people uncomfortable. And so they've asked me to demonstrate those mechanics. So we're going to do that. We're going to talk you through that. Okay. Now, I'm going to dedicate this to my favorite professional golfer, Cheech. He knows who he is. And so, Cheech, pay attention. This is going to be a really good one. Um, quick refresher. Everything is superimposed. Internal and external rotation, inhalation, exhalation, compression, expansion strategies. All of this stuff is superimposed. It's never just one or the other. All right, we're talking about gradients and we're talking about superimposition. So things are overlaid on top of one another. So it's never all one, it's never all the other until you hit the very, very extreme end ranges. So what we talk about when we're talking about internal and external rotations, we're talking about a bias. So we're gonna be biased towards external rotation at the top of the backswing. Now, we're gonna use a right-handed golfer as an example to make my life very, very simple. Okay, now let me simplify all rotational sports for you. All rotational sports are just variations of walking. Okay, and so when we talk about walking, and especially we talk about the, the golf swing, the golf swing is just walking with your feet fixed. So when we talk about the backswing, so the backswing is a lot like taking a step forward when you're walking. So as I step forward with my right foot and I swing my legs, or swing my arms rather, okay, I'm gonna to turn to the right. And so that's my early propulsive phase. And if I fix the foot and I use the exact same mechanics, it literally becomes 
the backswing. So now we've just simplified what the backswing is. Now we have to do is identify what an early propulsive strategy is. And so we want to think about what the hip position is going to be. So let me grab the pelvis real quick. Okay, so we're talking about, we're going to talk about right hip on a, on a golfer, on a right-handed golfer. And so this early phase of hip flexion, so this zero to 60 degree range, I am biased, biased towards external rotation. And this is actually where this backswing movement is actually going to take place. So right, right off the bat, just by position, I'm going to be biased towards external rotation. Now, if I want to transfer my weight to my right foot in my backswing and I want to turn my body to the right, I have to create a position inside the pelvis, within the pelvis, that allows me to make that turn. And so the position that I want to create is going to be that and that. So I have to create a counter nutation right here on, and a yielding strategy. So this is a concentric yielding strategy posteriorly in the pelvis that allows that sacrum to turn to the right. Okay, so I have to have the sacrum to turn to the right and a counter here or the lumbar spine cannot turn to the right. Now, as I do that, to create that shape in the pelvis, I'm also going to retrovert this acetabulum. If I retrovert this acetabulum, I am now in a position of ER. This is the end position of the, the backswing. So as I take the club back, I turn everything to the right, I'm going to create that position right there. Now. If I was to try to do this in internal rotation like a lot of people think, I'm going to IR the ilium, I'm going to nutate the sacral base on this side. If I nutate the sacral base on the right side and I try to move in that direction, I've just blocked the sacrum from turning to the right, I've just blocked the lumbar spine from turning to the right. If I try to twist a thorax on top of that, well, enjoy your spine surgery or your hip replacement because that's essentially what's going to happen. You're now turning against the mechanics that allow you to turn comfortably and efficiently. And so again, this is ER at the top of the backswing. It doesn't mean that there's no IR occurring because remember, they're superimposed. I'm just biasing it towards external rotation. Now, let's just suppose you don't have enough external rotation and you can't capture that position. What's your golf swing gonna look like? Well, you're gonna have a number of swing faults Keep in mind that all of these swing faults are going to be substitutions for the lack of being able to acquire this external rotation position. So you're going to try to supinate your right foot as you take the club back. So you're going to roll to the, to the pinky toe side of your foot. That's external rotation of your foot. That's a substitution for external rotation up the chain towards the hip. You're going to orient your knee outwards. So you're going to turn your lower leg and your and your thigh outward. So you're going to point your knee out towards right field as a substitution for the lack of external rotation. You're going to try to side bend away from that side or you'll reverse pivot, which is also a substitution for a lack of external rotation to the right. So all of these are, are substitutions for this inability to acquire the position at the top of the backswing. Now, here's a little hint. The same thing's happening in the upper thorax. So don't get confused. It's gonna be an ER position at the top as I accelerate the club head and move towards impact. That's where your internal rotation is gonna be infinitely more important because that's gonna be where max propulsion lies. That's an internal rotation strategy that's exhalation based and, and that's where you're gonna produce all of this force. So when I have to acquire range of motion, I need to be ER'd, inhaled, okay? And that's gonna be the top of the backswing and if I transition into IR in that point, I'm going to have to compensate. So I'm going to challenge a constraint or I'm going to create a swing fall. Hopefully that clarifies that for you. Um, if you have any more questions, please, please ask. Um, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. Have an outstanding Wednesday. And I will see you guys at the Coffee and Coaches call tomorrow morning.
Good morning. Happy Thursday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. I've just been trying to understand what happens in terms of expansion in the body with nutation and counter nutation. Uh -huh. And I've just been having trouble conceptualizing like where there's free space and where the guts are going. Okay. So what do you think so far? Well, it, what I'm not understanding is like, I feel like if I'm dipping into nutation, wouldn't that then just push everything forward and down or no, because it's not really, I mean, it's compressing down. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if, if the axis of the change, the expansion would go in the opposite way. So I like, uh, you used a word that I really, really like. So the pelvis has an axis. The, the picture on the left is, is, is the, the pelvic axis, the green arrow. You see it? Mm-hmm. Shake your head. Okay. Um, and so, so that would be some measure of an in-between <clears throat> kind of a thing. Okay. And so mm -hmm. you've got the, you've got the vertical pressures, you get the pelvic axis. And then if, if I, if I new take um, the, the sacrum and I I've exaggerated in, in the picture for effect here, you, you, you redirect the, the pelvic axis. So now that blue arrow becomes the new pelvic axis. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. and so so when when you think about um, the outlet, so basically you're reorienting the direction of the outlet. So if I lift, if I if I move the, I'll stop this, share for a second. So if I do that, right, you got to look at where I actually created space. So the so the 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 anterior outlet becomes concentrically oriented and, and will elevate. So it creates pressure upward, but I'm nutated there. And so I'm gonna follow the path of least resistance, okay? And mm -hmm. so, so under these circumstances, this is, this is why you, you get hip flexion during certain types of exercises versus like a, like a straight down descent. So that what, what people would say would be like, like the difference between like an RDL and a squat Right, so the RDL is is more nutated, and that's why your your behind moves backwards, um, because literally the the guts are going to follow the path of least resistance, and so where mm. the direction of the expansion is where you will move. Okay, mm -hmm. does that make sense? Yeah. Totally. Okay. Now, so so you've also got you've also got the the consideration that you've got a. Um, the pelvic floor muscles are pushing upward at the same time. Okay. So you got, well, you got pubic rectalis, pubic coccygeus, ilia, uh, uh, ilia, is it ilia um, and uh, opter. Um, <clears throat> anyway, so they're concentrically oriented and they're pushing up. And so the, so, so while, while you have an element of expansion in that, that, that posterior aspect that's allowing the, the pelvis to move backwards. I also have pressure going upward. So they, so the guts have to go somewhere. Okay. Now, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're nutated and under normal circumstances, that would be an exhalation, right? Um, so I would be, I would be exhaling. 
I would be compressing, and then so the, the guts would move up and forward. All right. If we're going to talk about like a compensatory strategy, though, um, where like if, if you have somebody that has a wide infrasternal angle and they're using a compensatory breathing strategy, they have a concentric um, thoracic diaphragm because of, of their, their breathing strategy, right? So they, they cheat to breathe in by pulling their diaphragm down into concentric orientation. So now I have concentric going up, I have concentric going down. Can you see it? Shoves everything forward. How about that? Yeah, exactly right. And 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 it's and it's a great way to express it because it's it's this is not this is not uh, the, a, a passive response. This is like okay, I'm pushing down, I'm pushing up. I only have so much space to go down and back with. The rest has to push out the front. And so this is where you get the really lean guys with the six pack, but they got kind of like the round belly, mm. right? Because they're compressed but the guts have to go somewhere. Easiest place, I can't go back through the spine. It's really hard to do that, right? And so, so they end up going, again, they're gonna follow the path of least resistance. And so you get this, like literally, it's like the guys are jacked and they got this, this kind of roundness to the, to the abdomen because the, the guts have to move somewhere, right? I okay. think that makes sense because the, the axis of the, the expansion really would shift kind of in line with the shape. Exactly. I was just, I was just exactly having exactly right. That is exactly yeah. right. Okay. And so, so now you've got, now you've got a really good understanding. It's like, so, so they're kind of walking around in the, in this orientation, like, okay, they're deadlifting 24 seven. Mm. So now think about, so, so now you kind of know where the expansion is going to be. Right. Where's the compression? On the opposites. Yeah. So now they walk in. They go, Yeah, my back really hurts, Bill. <laughs> this is this is why this is why the archetypes matter. This is why the compensatory breathing strategies matter. And th and then you're you're just seeing this this progressive reduction of adaptability, right? Yeah. And then look for look for where where they cannot alleviate that pressure. Am I good to go yet, or <laughs> go for it? <laughs> As, as soon as Grace gives you permission, you're good to go. <laughs> and so if the ISA is almost like a proxy measure for the adaptability of the easiest, e the most easily moved ribs, right? And the top rib, the first rib is the most difficult to affect. Is there a proxy measure to measure the, the change there? Like does the collarbone which, which and change? the- which, which change are we talking about? Just like, uh, whether you're going from like a, like a, like so, like a narrow to a wide or like a, a positional change, yes. So like does the collarbone and the superior border of the scap form some sort of angle? Or is that like, is that a thing or no? <laughs> does anybody want to take this one? Does anybody want, does anybody want to take it? I refuse to call it by the name that we're going to try to term it as because he'd get to. <laughs> Temporary so, angle. You're you're okay. not allowed. You're not allowed to have an exercise and and a, and an angle. Is that is that basically yeah, the rule? That can't work. <laughs> so yeah. So Lucas, there there there's an angle there. There's a very specific angle. In fact, um, so we we uh, we call it the Camperini angle just because I don't want anything named after anybody, and so I just kind of make fun of Campo. 
And so anything that comes up that we have to give a name to, I name it after him. Um, so, so that the angle between the clavicle and, and, and the, the scapula, right? Yeah. On average, on average, it's going to be about 60 degrees. Okay. Yeah. And do you have a standardized way of measuring it? Like, yeah, uh, I go, I go like that. All right, I, uh, all right. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. But, gotcha. but, but, but let me offer you, let me offer you this. It's like, so there are measures that are going to be associated with, with a narrowing of that angle. So, so think about, think about what would happen to, to, to close it. So to move the clavicle back and the scapula forward, there's stuff in the way. Right, so I have I have the I have the upper rib cage, I have air volume, etc. Right, and so for for the for that angle to actually close, I have to have an anterior posterior compressive strategy that is closing that angle. As it closes, it goes up. The the human rib cage is is somewhat conical. Um, so so basically the scap rides up and the clavicle moves up and back. That angle gets closed. It gets very, very narrow. And so, when you think about like uh, upper upper dorsal rostral compression, you think about the manubrium being compressed down. So you're going to lose uh, if it, if the clavicle moves back, you're going to lose um, internal rotation behind the body, and you're going to and if the dorsal upper dorsal rostral gets compressed, you're going to lose end range overhead reach. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have NeuroConfi in hand and it is perfect. Man, we had a great week. Um, so let's wrap this up with a really cool Q&A. Um, it addresses a, a, a situation that I'm very fond of talking about, which is the iterations between the, the pelvis and the thorax. And it comes from Ryan. And Ryan says, I have an interesting chessboard that I like, I'd appreciate your insight on. Um, the patient of interest has a wide ISA with bilateral upper dorsal rostral compression, left greater than right, and a right anterior upper thorax compression. They also have a limitation in right forearm pronation. So remember that orientation because it's going to show up here in the next paragraph. Lower body appears to be iterative, so Ryan's on point already. So it's iterative to the above presentation with bilateral hip ER limitations and a right hip IR limitation. They also have an early propulsive foot on the right that has difficulty dorsiflexing, pronating, and everting. So this person comes to, to Ryan with a complaint of a right lateral foot pain uh, with increased running volume. And if we, if we come up with a solution, I really think that, that, that this foot thing is going to be addressed, but it's more important that we talk about what this representation really looks like and what's happening. And then we'll talk about some, some strategies to resolve it. So let's grab a pelvis and let's see what this thing looks like. So um, Ryan mentioned that, that we've got dorsal rostral compression in the, in the upper thorax. So, so if we look at the iterations, dorsal rostral compression um, in the thorax would also be representative of this, this posterior upper compressive strategy in, in the pelvis. Now, it's, it's compressed on both sides, but Ryan also mentioned that they have a greater loss of external rotation on the left side versus the right. So we know the right side is leading. So we got a little bit more of a, of a, of a compressive strategy that's pushing this left side forward, which means that everything's going to be, be turned to the right. Now, if we look at the upper thorax, he says, I've got a right anterior 
thorax compression, which means that I'm gonna lose some shoulder internal rotation on this side. And guess what? We have a loss of hip internal rotation on that right side too. So Ryan, you've got a little bit of an anterior compressive strategy going on here in this, this right pelvis as well. So again, we got this great match. Now, let's talk about the forearm and the foot, because this is really cool. So um, Ryan was, was smart enough to check all the way down into the, into the forearm um, and, and the wrist uh, to identify what he's actually looking at, which is an awesome thing to do. Remember, we're treating the whole person here. And so he identified the fact that, I, that this person does not have normal pronation um, in, that, in that right upper extremity. And then he says, well, we got an early propulsive foot too. So let's take a look at that. So my early propulsive foot is an ER tibia. The tibia is behind the, behind the, uh, the malleolus here, okay? And I'm gonna have a, a decent arch in the foot. So that's my early propulsive strategy in the foot, which means that I have a foot that's gonna be biased towards external rotation slash supination. And so they can't pronate the foot either. So we have this beautiful, beautiful iteration um, from the, the, all the way from the ground all the way up to the upper extremity, which means that if we really wanna clean this thing up, we may have to go into the upper extremities um, to make sure that we have uh, a full restoration of movement capabilities throughout the axial skeleton and throughout the extremities so this person does not have a recurrence of, of this strategy during, during their running. Okay, so what are we gonna do? Okay, so a couple of strategies. If you wanna go manual, if you're a manual guy, um, you might wanna use the right lower extremity manipulation that I show on YouTube to try to recapture that middle propulsive strategy um, from the foot on up. And so, so that's a nice little video for you to watch. Um, when we talk about the upper extremity situation, we also have manipulations up there too. I would probably look at something that, that utilizes the, um, the, the radius at the elbow where you can drive pronation from, from uh, distal to proximal through the wrist we get a nice little manip at the elbow and that's gonna drive shoulder internal rotation as well. But there's a number of strategies that, can, that you can do uh, up there as well. We've got scap decompression that we could use. Also, I have a video of that on YouTube as well. That's gonna get you that dorsal rostral expansion and get you the restoration of, of some of your external rotations. If you're a soft tissue guy, identify your concentric orientations and that's where you're gonna to wanna to spend your time um, reducing that. So if, if you've done all of that, now we wanna think about, well, I need this person to actually learn how to manage this thing themselves, so we wanna teach them how to reduce this anterior orientation situation. So we're gonna use some form of hip extension. The question mark is, is how much hip flexion do you have available to work with under this situation? If you do not have 90 degrees, so if I don't have hip internal rotations, then chances are I don't have 90 degrees of hip flexion to work with, so I can't use anything in that range. So I might have to drop them down into hook line, I might have to work on some posterior orientation activities, in the pelvis so I can work through a, a, an excursion of that hip that I do have available. Once I do that, I have to create a delay strategy on the left side. So we're gonna do some form of hip shifting. We gotta, we gotta push back on that left side to create some, some yielding strategy on the left to create the delay of the propulsion because that's what's pushing everything forward. So what it's gonna look like, it's gonna look like that picture right there if my if my technology is, is friendly today. You're gonna to see a picture of a, of a before situation that's probably gonna look a lot like, like Ryan's patient here. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna, we're gonna teach them how to expand posteriorly on the left with the yielding strategy. And then it's gonna look like 
that picture right there. So again, hopefully my technology is working and you've just seen a before and an after of this situation. Now, once you recover pelvic orientation, yielding strategy, now we gotta flip flop our strategies. We gotta get the right, right leg ahead of the left and push back into the left. We've gotta train the right side through middle propulsion. So um, in a lot of situations, what I'll do is I'll take people out of their shoes, get their foot on the ground, so we can translate that tibia over the foot actively to start to drive through that middle propulsive phase. So those of you that they're thinking heel rocker, ankle rocker, toe rocker, this is your ankle rocker as well. Um, if you need to go into the upper extremity, you're gonna to wanna to try to drive something very, very similar in the upper extremity that we just talked about with the right lower extremity lead. But in this situation, it's gonna become like a right oblique sit with the forearm and pronation. Um, it's gonna progress into some form of, of side plank in the gym. If we continue on into the gym, um, you might not be able to use 90 degrees right off the bat because if I put somebody in half kneeling, they don't have, they, they can't recapture their internal rotation right away in an, in an upright position because I've, I've got um, external rotation on both sides of the pelvis, which tilts the pelvis on on a, a bit of an oblique axis. However, I can bring them up into a staggered stance situation, and so now I can get my cable chops, I can do a high-low cable press, and I can work some backward sled drags, and so now I can be effective in the gym, I can maintain my, my posterior expansion, the yielding strategy on, on the backside, I can push off that right foot into, into the, the backside, and now I have just reoriented everything and I'm maintaining all of my changes. So Ryan, I hope that gives you a few ideas on how to approach this so you can go manual, you gotta recapture the, the positions and then reinforce that, that stuff in the gym. But it's a great representation of the iterations. Thank you so much for the question. Um, if you have any questions yourself, ask billhartman at gmail.com, ask billhartman at gmail.com. Have an outstanding weekend, and I will see you guys later.